This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Dr. Jocelyn Lebo, a clinical child and adolescent psychologist at Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus. Child and adolescent eating disorders are serious diseases characterized by a range of physical and psychological consequences. They are often associated with a chronic course and numerous relapses. Early detection is strongly associated with the most positive prognoses for eating disorders. And as most of these patients are presenting first to primary care, the primary care provider can be invaluable in identifying these illnesses early before symptoms become entrenched. This episode is the second in our eating disorders edition focused on how primary care physicians can assess for and identify eating disorders in child and adolescent patients. This episode will discuss high yield assessment questions and tools that you can use in your primary care practice when you suspect a young patient may meet criteria for an eating disorder. Today, I'm so excited. We are joined by Dr. Paige Partain, a Mayo Clinic Children's Center pediatrician and one of my colleagues and collaborators in the Mayo Clinic Primary Care Child and Adolescent Eating Disorder Clinic. Thanks for joining us today, Paige. Happy to be here. I think that this is just such a hard topic, right? Patients come into your office. They're not coming in usually saying, hey, I have an eating disorder. Check it out. It's a well child or like they have a sore toe or a rash and you have 15 minutes. With these patients coming in for all these different presenting problems, what type of red flags make you start to really think, "Mm, maybe I should be assessing for an eating disorder? That's a great question. I think there's a whole host of them. Probably the biggest one, first and foremost, is the growth chart. So as pediatricians, that's something that it's like one of my favorite things, looking at a growth chart, seeing a growth chart. I try to make a habit of looking at them at every visit, even if it's not a wellness visit, because we typically at least get a weight in our clinic because we're thinking about whether we're going to be dosing medications, et cetera. So if I'm flipping over and I'm looking at a growth chart during a visit and I'm seeing a significant weight loss, if I'm seeing even a stalling in weight gain, especially with like drifting of their percentiles, that's something that really catches my attention. And often I'll like to do a little bit more digging and kind of get a sense of what might be going on and whether that was something that was purposeful or whether it might be related to other things going on. Like, oh, we had a GI bug for three weeks in our house and there was lots of vomiting. Oh, okay. That might explain a few things versus no, this isn't something that we were aware of, or I noticed that he was thinning out a little bit. So that's kind of one of my first indicators that there might be something else going on underlying things. Probably the other biggest thing that sticks out to me is when I'm hearing big routine changes. Like if I'm hearing about a kid who comes in and they're telling me, typically in a wellness visit, if we're talking about like eating styles and other things, and they're talking about how they made major dietary changes, you know, and they're talking about, oh, I cut out all sugar or I've been cutting out all processed foods or, you know, I decided five months ago that I was going to go totally vegan. That's certainly something that sticks out to me. I think there's lots of dietary choices that are great fits for people. And it's not to say there's anything wrong with being vegetarian or being vegan. I have lots of patients who are, but often if it's a distinct change and it's not something that, for instance, has been going on, you know, oh, they've been a vegetarian since they were eight, then it sort of just catches my attention. And I want to stop and evaluate a little bit more and see like, you know, what was the underlying motivator here for everything that's been going on? You know, in our last episode, we talked a lot about the specific eating disorder diagnoses. But what I'm wondering, from your perspective as a primary care provider, 
what do these eating disorders look like in the wild? What, you know, not so much the DSM criteria, what do you see and how do they kind of sneak past you the most? I like the terminology in the wild because yeah. that's the reality, right? They, mm-hmm. they don't look like the typical Hallmark movie, cachectic kid staring in a mirror. I, I want to say I've maybe only had one or two patients that actually presented that way who had eating disorders. The vast majority of them are a little bit more subtle. And so I think that's why it's helpful to think about those kinds of red flags. Honestly, they present like gradual changes. I'll see the changes in the growth chart or I'll hear about changes in the diet or changes in the exercise routine, or I'll hear about them making comments about their body. And then when I look back and get a little bit more history, I get this sort of graduated history of changes, small changes all along the way. And then when I take a snapshot of where they are right now, I would say probably one of the most common ones that I get is what I sort of jokingly refer to as the busy teenager paradox, which is like, the kid who comes in who's so busy that they're only eating once a day. So, you know, they're getting up, they're going straight to school in the morning, they're at school all day, then they run to a sports practice or a theater rehearsal or whatever it is, and they're not getting home until seven or eight o'clock, and then they just eat dinner and go to bed. It kind of looks like there's like a quote-unquote like rational explanation for them missing all these meals. Yeah, Um, very often, yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are the ones that mess you up the most, that you miss the most, that sneak past you? So those will sometimes sneak past if I'm not paying good attention Mm -hmm. or thinking about it. I like to be really cognizant of making sure at the very least that the busy kids are eating multiple times a day. I think some of the ones that kind of sneak in at times are the ones that I like to think about as kind of backing into an eating disorder, meaning they didn't start out trying to make any changes related to their eating, their weight, et cetera. It started somewhere totally different. Maybe it started, you know, with a kid who had like GI symptoms, who was having a lot of reflux, having a lot of belly pain, and then slowly started feeling uncomfortable every time they ate, and then slowly started cutting back a little bit more on what they ate. Or kiddos with mood concerns, I say kiddos, teenagers, adolescents with mood concerns. I think that's probably one of the most common ones that can sneak by because it's really easy to get overwhelmed or bogged down in all the mood stuff that's going on. It's really serious and it can feel really overwhelming for parents, but also for us as providers when they come in. And so it's often easy to get kind of honed in on what's going on with their mood and their safety and forget to take a step back and say, hey, wait, are we eating? what's going on with that. It's not uncommon at all for kids to start out with symptoms of depression. And then one of the key symptoms of depression is appetite changes, right? And I have a lot of kids that get so depressed and so tired that they just, they're not hungry. They're not eating. They don't feel like eating. And so it just sort of falls out of their routine. And I think that's an easy one to slide under the radar. I think this is really important to talk about. If there's reasons why they're losing weight, if they've got sort of this narrative, which again, we know it's true, kids back into eating disorders all the time. What are the high yield assessment questions that you really use to start to to parse that out? So I think there's a couple different ones. First and foremost is just to get a sense of whether the changes that are going on have been purposeful. I think that's a clear sort of early indicator to me that I want to dig a little bit more and see what the purpose was and where we're going with it. Many times it wasn't purposeful or the parents are sort of surprised or they didn't even notice um, because the changes were so subtle. And then it's a a matter of getting a, a better sense of that timeline of what's been going on and how many of the changes have happened over the course of that timeline. If the listeners take one key thing away from this entire conversation, the one thing that I would really remember is if you have concerns about an eating disorder, this is probably one of the only times in my practice that I would ever specifically talk to a parent alone without an adolescent. And I think it's absolutely crucial. So, you know, we get trained to really 
build up our morale and our rapport with the teenager and to spend that time talking with the teenager alone. And it's a very normal thing to ask parents to step out so that you can talk with them. I think that's important. Don't get me wrong. And I usually do that first. I spend the time talking with the teenager, getting a sense of where they are, what their mood is, all those kinds of things. But what I'll typically do then is give them maybe like a screening questionnaire, like an Eat 26 screening questionnaire or something else. And I'll say, hey, I've got a little homework for you. I need you to take care of this form. I'm going to have you sit right here across the hall and I'm just going to chat with your mom for a couple minutes while you work on this. And so, you know, they have a purpose. They're working on that. And I actually get an opportunity to talk with the parents one-on-one because so, so many times it's very different story in terms of what the teenager will give me versus what the parent is observing externally. And at times the parents are willing or able to say some of that in front of the teenager, but often it's something that is a much more fruitful conversation if you can spend that time with their parent. That's really interesting. That's really important, I think. Once you've kind of latched onto this, like, okay, I'm pretty sure this is a meeting disorder. What do you do? What do you do labs? Do you do, what do you do for your medical assessment? And, and when do you have them come back? That's a great question. So I think a little bit, it depends on what the presentation's looking like. For instance, if it's a kid who has just drifted a little bit in their weight percentile, they're not really acutely losing weight. I'm not hearing extreme restriction. You know, it's a kid who's still eating a couple times a day, but I'm just not really liking how much they've narrowed down what they're eating, or I'm, I'm hearing other things that make me worried. I'll often just give them a challenge initially. I'll sort of talk a little bit about the importance of eating regularly and maintaining weight for good growth. And the parents understand that. They appreciate that. And I'll just say, hey, I need you to gain some weight for me. Let's, where can we make some changes? And I'm going to have you come back in a handful of weeks. I don't give them several months usually. I give them a much tighter timeline. That way I'm, I'm not going to lose them to follow up. And I'll say, I need you to gain some weight for me. And it's sort of like my challenge, so to speak. And a handful of the times they come back and they've gained some weight and they're back on track. Those are my favorites because I feel like I've sort of averted a really challenging time. But other times when I'm really suspicious that there's more psychopathology there, where that there's more stress around the eating, that there's more fear of weight gain, and we're just not hearing it. I ask them to prove it and they come back in and the parents go, whoa, okay, that was hard. He didn't want to eat or she didn't want to eat. They really started pushing back a lot. And I start to hear a little bit more of the typical eating disorder symptoms, which in a way for me is helpful from a diagnostic standpoint. You know, that gives me more confidence in the fact that I suspect that there's an eating disorder underlying things. I think that's also such an important, you know, getting families on board is really difficult with eating disorder treatment. And when they go and you can point out your really rational, logical kid was given this feedback, you know, that they have to gain weight and they were unable to do it. They eat less. You know, you tried to give them a milkshake and they acted like you were asking them to plunge their hand in boiling water. That is a light bulb for parents. Obviously, we're not necessarily trying to get the kid as much on board, especially with anorexia. But but I think that's really important. I want to highlight what you said, because I think that's been a big practice change in our work, having them come back sooner. Like I know a lot of times mm-hmm. you and the other pediatricians have people come back in a week, which is not your typical yeah. practice. I would say there's a little difference there in terms of like how much leash I'll give them, so to speak. If it's a kid who's acutely losing more weight or I'm really seriously concerned, in particular, if I'm worried about medical stability, those are kids that right away I'll be talking about my concerns. I'll talk about the fact that we need to get some blood work to at the very least rule out other reasons why they're losing weight. And typically there's not a problem getting them on board for that because the parents want 
a different, more rational explanation, something that's a little easier to wrap their head around, like celiac disease or a thyroid problem or something like that. So, you know, typically in those cases, I'm getting blood work, I'm getting an EKG, I'm getting orthostatic vital sign measurements there in the office, and I'm having them come back in a week. What are your differentials? What are the things you are trying to rule out with with the lab work and, and just in general? I think there's a really long list of things, particularly in a kid who's, you know, who's losing weight or not growing, that that differential is hugely broad. I mean, we think about big things like the thyroid, like any kind of problem with malabsorption. So like celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, a whole host of malabsorptive syndromes. We think about problems in terms of like mood and other things, but what typically in, in my experience, if I'm worried about one of those other things on my differential list, there's usually some other symptoms that point me that way as well. And so if I have a kid in the office and they're losing weight or they're not gaining weight and they're saying, no, I'm not having diarrhea. I'm not having any bloody stools. I'm not having any hot or cold intolerance or rash or, you know, problems, you know, that might make me think more about the other things in my differential, then very often I'm thinking, God, this is looking a little bit more and more like an eating disorder, but I still have to convince myself because, you know, every once in a while I find a case that's not an eating disorder that's related to something else. And we definitely don't want to be missing those cases. I think that's smart. And I think that's such a benefit to having you guys in the primary care setting doing a lot of this assessment. You guys have such a broad base of knowledge. You can rule out so many things that as a psychologist, I like don't even know what they are. You're sure it's an eating disorder. You've done all your workup. You've done all your questioning. What's your pitch to families, especially families who are not coming in? Give me your spiel to give them this feedback. Yeah, it's a a hard pitch. Typically, I'll start off by sort of acknowledging the things that we all agree upon. Like, you know, like, look, Susie's in here today and I'm looking at this growth chart and it sounds like we're all worried that she's been losing some weight and that you've noticed that her eating habits at home have changed. This makes me really worried because in the end of the day, this is more than just needing to eat a little bit more. And that's typically the point I like to initially hammer home is, it feels very normal. Eating isn't a part of our everyday lives. So when we talk about the fact that they need to gain weight, it's easy for parents just to think like, oh, I just need to get them to eat a little more. And I like to take the time to say, this is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something that is much more serious than that. This is literally a matter of a disease in which the food is their medicine. If they are not eating the food, it's like them refusing to take their chemotherapy for their leukemia. I mean, this is something that is super serious. And I think it's helpful to sort of watch that light switch go on in the parent's brain, like, oh, because you could tell that initially they might've been processing it like, oh, this is just that they need to eat a little more. I need to get them eating a little bit more. They start to recognize like, oh, this isn't just that. This is something more. And I think it's important to use the term eating disorder or to say anorexia, because very often that helps them understand this is not just, I need to eat a little more. (laughs) This is something that's truly more far-reaching than that. And I like to make sure that they understand all of the different, not only medical implications, but sort of mortality implications, because this isn't just a matter of struggling through your day. There's very real morbidity and mortality associated with eating disorders. So I take a little bit of time to talk to them about that. It's almost, we, you know, we jokingly call it the funeral session. It's this idea of recognizing what we have to come to terms with and what we have to battle and then also setting them up for success, saying, we're not going to let this win. Here's what we're going to do. It's a team effort. It's we. It's not just you. It's me and you trying to get them back in and I'm going to be with you every step of the way. 
And this message is really delivered to the parents, right? The kid is there, but this is really the parents you're trying to hook. So the funeral session is terminology we stole from from family-based treatment, one of the evidence-based treatments for anorexia. And I think it's important to underscore We call it that because you're coming in, you're not attempting to reassure the family. You're not attempting to minimize, which I I think for psychologists and for primary care providers feels weird. We're used Mm to being like, you can do this. This isn't so bad. And, And really there is a piece where you have to sort of empower parents, but also heighten their anxiety. And I think the important piece to take home about that this isn't a scare tactic. Scare tactics don't work. We're not trying to scare families straight here. What we're trying to do is underscore the realities of what this disease is, because what we have to ask them to do next, whether it's outpatient treatment, whether meal monitoring, or whether it's a higher level of care, it's awful. It's terrible. It's incredibly difficult for every member of the family. It is so burdensome. And we have to underscore, we wouldn't ask you to do this if it wasn't for the fact that this could save your child's life. This is that serious. Absolutely. And I I can see a distinct difference when I approach this conversation in cases when the family has experience with eating disorders, maybe a cousin or someone else in the family, or maybe another sibling. I've had a couple cases where they've gone through eating disorder treatment with an older sibling and they're coming in with a younger sibling and the parents are already noticing. They're seeing these things and they're already worried. And then when I confirm their fears and I say, I'm really worried about an eating disorder, they go, oh, because they know what that means. But in my mind, it also means they get it. They get how important this is and that they're going to be bought in to what we have to do to get their child better. What about for those cases, and and we've seen quite a few of these, where a kid is not necessarily doing something that seems outside of the normal curve, but rather it was a higher BMI kid or a kid who wanted to get in shape for track or a kid who's really trying to make healthy changes that, that maybe were even given to him by a provider, right? We're even kind of motivated by advice he got from a healthcare provider. I see families coming in, having backed into an eating disorder from trying to make quote unquote healthy changes. And they really struggle with this feedback that now their kid is sick. How do you thread that needle? Oh, that is a really tough one to thread. I think in a way we're a little bit helped sometimes by the fact that unfortunately, by the time these patients come to the office or there's a concern about an eating disorder, typically their symptoms are a lot more severe. The data tells us that, that it takes longer for them to come to diagnosis and to treatment. Higher so BMI kids. Very, yes, yes. Um, so I think in some ways it's helpful because the parents have at least usually started to recognize, like, I think we've gone too far. And so they'll realize that there's a problem. But like you said, I think convincing them that weight gain is the solution can be really, really challenging. I think the way that I approach this conversation is by talking more about the Minnesota starvation study and helping parents understand it doesn't matter where the weight loss came from. It might've come from well-intentioned changes, but really the way to heal the brain is to give it nourishment. And we know that that works. We know that that works from anorexia treatment. We know that that works from the Minnesota starvation study. And so I try to help them understand we need them to gain this weight. We need them to gain this weight back. And a part of what I'll explain is the number when we finish their treatment in terms of getting them back to their curve that they were previously tracking on, I said, the number may be the same. The number may be similar. Often we're not shooting for a specific number, but my goal is that their relationship with food is very different. 
So at the end of the day, probably one of the reasons why they had to embark on some of these changes to begin with is because they had a sort of disordered relationship with food that was making it challenging for them to moderate what they were eating during the day or to find fulfillment in their food or to enjoy it, right? And so they went toward dieting and restricting and doing some of these other things that led to the initial weight loss. And so I try to help them understand that we're going to heal their brain. And then what we're going to try to do is heal their relationship with food so that we leave them in a place where in the long term, they have a more healthful relationship with food, which is actually better for their health as well. Because we, I mean, we know as hard as it is from, for the medical providers, we're very um, numbers oriented and we're very driven by that. It's not all about the number at the end of the day. I think I can have kids that are 30 or 40 pounds different in their weight and their overall cardiovascular health profiles can be drastically different. And if the kid who carries more weight is more active and is eating a better balance in their diet, every single time they're gonna have a better lipid panel than the kid who's sitting there is inactive, is not eating any fruits and vegetables. So I think that that's crucial to help families understand. I had that happen actually with a set of siblings in my office, twins, that were just totally different body types, one higher weighted and one medium weighted around the 60th percentile and very different activity profiles. The higher weighted sibling was an athlete and was busy and was doing lots and lots of workouts. And the other was not really into athletics, did more like art and video games and theater. And so wasn't very active and they had family history of cholesterol problems. So I sent panels on both of them. They were nearly identical, even though the higher weighted sibling was something like 150 pounds more than their twin. So I think at the end of the day, it's not always that drastic, right? But I think they have to understand that it's not just about the number. So it definitely takes some time to get families on board. I think it takes time for me a lot of times to get other providers on board with recognizing this, but I think it's absolutely crucial that we rehabilitate their brain first because we're not gonna fix the eating disorder if we don't rehabilitate their brain. And then we have to work on what's the long-term relationship and how are we finding them a place where they're eating more intuitively they're not eating because they want a specific shape or a specific number that they're essentially eating to give their body what it needs. Oh my gosh. Okay. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. So we've been talking about identification and assessment of eating disorders with Dr. Paige Bartain. Thank you so much for your time, Paige. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. I'm happy to be here. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And for everybody, stay healthy and we'll see you next week.